Well, this time I'll call, call up uh, Glenn Warkentine, and he's going to uh, recite some of Revelation for us. So, Glenn, welcome. It's Revelation chapter 4. Then I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And before the throne were 24 thrones, and upon those thrones 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, and who is, and who is to come. And when the four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before their throne, saying, Thou art worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and because of thy will, they were created and have their being. Well, we want to continue to worship the Lord now through the preaching of his word, and so I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. <clears throat> Not that long ago, heaven tourism was all the rage, as people who purported to have been to heaven and back again were writing bestsellers like The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, 90 Minutes in Heaven, and Heaven is for Real, the last book even being made into a popular film. And together, these three books alone sold over 17 million copies, which many Christians consider to be a positive sign. It indicated a renewed interest 
in the afterlife. But other Christians, myself included, were kind of baffled by this phenomenon, especially by the fact that most people reading these books were believers. Why would so many care so much about what someone claimed they had experienced after a near-death experience without a, well, a healthy dose of skepticism? Not surprisingly, one of the boys from one of the books later admitted with his mother that the whole thing was made up, an exaggeration and embellishment, they said. But what, what bothered me far more is, is that while many couldn't get enough of these books, I just never saw the same enthusiasm for the infallible teaching of the book about heaven. I remember a Christian lady telling me that some of her friends wanted to do a book study on heaven is for real, and she said, well, how about let's study what scripture says about heaven instead, and they scoffed and said, well, that's not very interesting. If only they could have read what the boy from one of the other books said a few years later in 2015. Please forgive the brevity, but because of my limitations, I have to keep this short. I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People profited from lies and many continue to. They should have instead read the Bible, which is enough. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. It certainly is. And that's why I am so very excited to continue with you this morning and consider what the Bible says about heaven, and specifically the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and 5. As we continue along in our study of the revelation of Jesus Christ, we come now to the third section of the book, which moves the reader from the past and the present to the future. As we saw a few weeks ago in that divine outline of chapter 1, verse 19, the apostle was, you remember, to write the things that you have seen, that was chapter 1, those that are, that's chapter 2 and 3, and finally, those that are to take place after this, which we know is now chapter 4 to the end, verse tw uh, chapter 22, uh, because those very same words are used here in chapter 4, verse 1. At the end, it says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So the remainder of the book, in other words, is prophecy, just as we read in chapter 1, verse 3, which isn't surprising since you remember John wrote in chapter 1, verse 1, that the reason for Christ's revelation is to show his servants the things that must soon take place, to fill us in on the future starting with what is going to take place in heaven, in the special dwelling place of God, just before the final events of God's prophetic plans unfold on earth. Information that we'll now see was given to the Apostle John through a unique vision that begins with him beholding the power of God in heaven. So starting in chapter 4, verse 1, again, we read, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So the whole uh, focus shifts now from earth in chapters 2 and 3 to heaven in chapters 4 and 5. 
After receiving Christ's instruction to the churches, John now received an invitation to come up to the dwelling place of God, which of course isn't literally up in space somewhere, but is rather, we might say, out of this world. It's outside of time and space, as these words are trying to say. Now, the apostle first sees in this vision a door standing open in heaven. And then he hears a voice like a trumpet. The same verse, a voice he had heard in chapter 1, verse 10. And of course, this is the voice of Christ. This is the voice of the glorified Son of Man who is going to show him, notice, not what might take place in the future, but he says what must take place in the future. And it starts with the throne room of heaven. Verse 2, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, thrones show up a lot in the book of Revelation. In fact, of the 62 instances of the word throne in the New Testament, 47 are in this final book, which makes sense because of its significant symbolism. In the first century, like today, a throne unmistakably signified the sovereign authority of a king. It was a universal picture of grandeur and of the the power to rule and reign, the power to judge and to save. Now for John and the, the seven churches to whom this book was originally written, a throne would have certainly been a reminder of the Roman emperor whom you'll remember was worshipped throughout the empire, citizens being required to claim that Caesar is Lord, which of course then led to severe persecution of the early Christians who rather confessed that Christ is Lord. But despite how difficult things were on earth and still are for many Christians today, and despite how how powerful the thrones of the wicked in this world can see, John sees there's another throne in heaven, a throne that is above every other throne. And when we behold it, and what is what is happening and, and what will happen there, we get a completely different picture of reality. Listen, the picture of our our world that is presented to us all the time on television and online and elsewhere of powerful world leaders and influencers, corporations and elites who doing as they please, often at the expense of the righteous and weak, that is real, but that is not ultimate reality. They have actual power, but it is not ultimate power. That belongs to God. Church, all the havoc that happened on the earth when this was originally written and all that has happened since and continues to happen today, it is all under the sovereign control of the King of Kings, whom John shows us is sitting right now on his throne in heaven, reigning. And that means we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to despair. Despite all appearances on earth, the Lord reigns in heaven. As Corey Ten Boom, who suffered greatly, you'll know, at the hands of the Nazis in World War II said, there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. 
For his dominion, we read in Daniel 4, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Or as we simply read in Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And the Apostle John now attempts to describe the one on this throne with earthly comparisons of of clear and red precious gems, along with a a light green rainbow of some kind. It's a a vision in living color. Verse 3, we read, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emeralds. So again, trying to describe the indescribable, John uses the similar language of the prophet Ezekiel, who had also been given a unique heavenly vision of God in Ezekiel chapter 1, both of which should leave the reader, should leave us in utter awe of the one who is wholly other, of the one who is over all. As that chorus from years ago says, you are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard, majesty enthroned above, and I stand, I stand in awe of you. We can't read this without standing in awe of the one it reveals. But there's more. We read on seeing that he who rules and reigns over all and his majestic throne in heaven, he's not alone. No, around the throne are many others whose appearances and actions, whose descriptions and declarations further just magnify the glory and the honor and the power of God. First, there are the 24 elders around the throne of heaven. We read in verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. It seems likely these individuals represent the church, the bride of Christ, since their their white clothing and their gold crowns were both promised rewards for the churches who conquer in chapter 2 and 3, you'll remember. And also it's a description of the bride of Christ later in chapter 19. Which could be further evidence that the church will be caught up to be with Christ before the seven-year tribulation that follows uh, in chapter 6, 19, though not definitive, something we talked about last week. But um, that they're seated seated here, excuse me, on thrones uh, that indicates their participation with the power of the king. And that, again, would have been such a great encouragement. For these seven churches, who you remember, were persecuted and powerless on earth. In heaven, they will reign. And so will we. The 24 elders are around the throne in heaven, most likely the church. But then we also go on to see in verse 5 and 6 that there were the seven spirits of God before the throne of heaven. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Later, these same sights and sounds in the sky will be signs of impending judgment. 
further demonstrating the sovereign authority of God the Father. We'll see that in chapter 8 and 11 and 16. But notice he's joined in heaven by God the Spirit, symbolized here by seven torches and seven spirits, signifying the sevenfold power and perfection of the Holy Spirit, just as he was in chapter 1 and 3. And with the voice of God the Son in, chapter, in verse 1, we have another presentation here of the Trinity, the one triune God whom we cannot see, but nevertheless is alive and well in the throne room of heaven. So there's 24 elders around the throne of God. There, are, there is the, the God, the Spirit, uh, before the throne. And then there are the four living creatures beside the throne of heaven. Middle of verse 6. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them. Again, we see that heaven is unlike anything we have ever seen on earth. It is a sensational place. Imagine a throne with a floor like a sea of glass. And it's it's filled with these strange people. Four living creatures covered with eyes and wings. Looking like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Whatever that means. (laughs) Probably these similes symbolize their, their preeminence amongst other angelic beings since these are all at the top of their perspective categories. And, and it bears much uh, similarity to the descriptions of the seraphim in Isaiah 6 and the cherubim in Ezekiel 1. Yet, while these creatures' identification isn't clear, their activity in heaven is crystal clear. Along with the 24 elders, it says they unceasingly worship heaven's king. Middle of verse 8, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and power and honor for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So not only is the majesty and authority of God revealed in heaven via his throne, it is also revealed audibly via the worship of this great throng, of the elders and creatures. Who did you notice? It says, never stop proclaiming and praising God, and particularly his divine attributes. Reminding, as it were, each other that he is the holy, almighty, eternal, worthy, glorious creator and sustainer of all. The very thing John and the seven churches who were sharing in tribulation on earth also needed to be reminded of, along with churches in every age. So so that we too might fall down and, and cast our crowns before the Lord God acknowledging that despite all appearances, he is above all. He is ruling and reigning, and he alone is worthy of worship. Commenting on this passage, William Hendrickson writes, Our affairs rest in the hands not of men, but of God. 
Hence, when the world is enkindling the flames of hatred and slaughter, and when the earth is drenched with blood, may our tear-dimmed eye catch a vision of the throne, which rules the universe. In the midst of trial and tribulation, may our gaze be riveted upon the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. The Apostle John beheld the power of God in heaven, and what a difference that made in his life on earth as it should ours as well. But that's not all. Secondly, we see that the Apostle John also beheld the program of God in heaven at the beginning of chapter 5. Verse 1 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So if chapter 4 was centered on a throne, chapter 5 is centered on, these, on this scroll. A long piece of papyrus or of uh, animal skins that would have been rolled up together into the middle. And it was securely in God's right hand, and it was sealed with seven seals of, of wax or clay. Scrolls like this were used throughout the Roman Empire for contracts, title deeds, and wills. And this particular scroll no doubt contains God's will for the future of his world, his prophetic program. And specifically, it contains the remaining prophecy of chapter 6 to 22. Now, it's interesting, unlike the prophecy that was given to Daniel that was sealed up securely in Daniel 12 to conceal future events, this prophecy that was given to John was meant to be opened up and communicate future events to show him what must soon take place. But there was a problem. Not just anybody had the authority to open the scroll. Verse 2, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So it appears that heaven has a problem. Before the rest of God's program for this world can be revealed to John, The seals must be broken by someone who is worthy and able. But nowhere, nowhere in the entire universe is there found such a person who can open the scroll. Not even in heaven, it says, where saints like Moses and David and and Paul and Peter now dwell. Not even in the spiritual realm, not even this mighty angel who's announcing it could open the scroll. And because of that, what happened to John? He wept loudly, indicating his deep desire to know what was in that scroll. Church, do we care that much about Bible prophecy? Do we care that much about God's program for for this world and for history, how things are going to end? Many Christians today won't even bother to read or study the revelation of Jesus Christ. It doesn't really interest them at all. Or some, like we talked about earlier, are intimidated. Don't even try. Meanwhile, here we see John, 2,000 years ago, bawling his eyes out over the thought that he might never know the rest of the book and what it's about and what's yet to come. 
Would that we had the same passion for prophecy, the same hunger for what is yet to happen according to God's program for this world. Well, it didn't take long, and John's tears were dried as finally the one and only worthy one arrives. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and, and the four living, cre- living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. Clearly, this is none other than the glorified Jesus Christ, the promised descendant of Judah, the line of Judah, as he's called in Genesis 49, and of the lineage of David, as we see in Isaiah 11. This is the son of man and son of God, the firstborn of the dead, who has forever conquered Satan, sin, and death. And notice, not as a lion, he's coming again as a lion, but the way that he conquered initially, the defining moment, was as a lamb. Who, as John the Baptist said at the beginning of John's gospel, is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who died for our sin and then rose again three days later, victorious and vindicated, who is now standing in heaven. Notice with seven horns, symbols of authority, and seven eyes, symbols of wisdom. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And he alone has the right to take the scroll from the Father's hand, ready to reveal it all. What a sight. And again, what an encouragement to those who are suffering for Christ on earth. That he who rose from the dead is worthy to reveal to his servants what is yet ahead and to finally reign on this earth that belongs to him, just as he now reigns in heaven. We see a similar scene in Daniel 7, 13 to 14, a prophecy given hundreds of years earlier where it says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is how it all ends. That is God's program for all of history. Christ wins. And if we are united to Christ, we win with him. We are on, as I said earlier, the right side of history if we were on the side of Christ. No matter what things look like on this earth, this is the truth given to us by the one who reigns, who reigns over all in heaven. And it's so important that we remember this. The Apostle John beheld the program of God in heaven. Then thirdly and finally, the Apostle John beheld the praise of God in heaven. Starting in verse 8, we read, And when he had taken the scroll, 
The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In chapter one, when the apostle John saw the glorified son of man, he said in verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead, because that is the only fitting response to the one who has eyes like flames of fire and whose face burns like the full strength of the sun. Well, now we see very similar response here from the church and the cherubim in heaven. When they see that Christ alone is worthy to take the scroll and reveal what is to come, they too fall down before him in reverence and in awe, just as they did earlier in chapter 4, verse 10. That is the humble and holy posture of worshipers in heaven which is surely a lesson for how we should be also worshiping the Lord on earth with the same reverence and awe, the same seriousness, the same submissiveness, the same joyful solemnity in wonder at he who is worthy. There's so much we can learn about true worship in these chapters. You know, really, I was thinking this week, it could be a whole nother series just about how heaven worships and how that should affect our worship on earth. But we also see here as we read on what heaven sings. Verse 9 and 10, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So notice who worship is about in heaven. The focus of every saying and every song in this section, it's God the Father in chapter 4, and it's God the Son here in chapter 5, who are both said to be worthy, a word that was used by the Romans when they would greet the emperor into their city. How comforting, again, that must have been for this early church who were persecuted by Caesar, to remember that, in fact, it is Christ alone who is worthy, the true king of heaven and earth. Only he has the right to be worshipped, which literally means to ascribe worth. As J.A. Packer wrote, to worship God is to recognize his worth or worthiness, to look Godward, to acknowledge in all appropriate ways the value of what we see. Another vital lesson for the church to learn today, when so much worship today, or I would say worship today, is all about me. Instead of exalting the, the one triune God, who he is, what he's done, how he alone is worthy to receive all the glory and honor and praise, we rather so often worship, we so often sing about our experience of God, how he loves me, how he helps me, how he makes me feel, which maybe has a place, but as we see here and elsewhere, that should never be the main thing. The main thing is God. He alone is worthy of our praise. And all of our worship should always be centered on him first and foremost, not on us. Now, in this particular case, notice it's the the revelation, the redemption, and the reign of King Jesus 
that is at the center of their praise. Another reminder for us that our worship should be gospel-centered, declaring the, the glorious truths of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of special note is the first mention here of the universal people of God, whom he has ransomed or set free from every tribe and language and people and nation. A reoccurring theme, when all of heaven joins to sing, it says, a new song, which doesn't mean recent, but fresh. It's interesting, whenever a future event in God's prophetic program unfolds, we will see that heaven has a fresh song. And in this case, because of the imminent opening of the scroll, they sing this song. But in later cases, they praise God when other plans are fulfilled. I have in your notes some examples in chapter 7, 14, 15, and 19. But just let me just read from chapter 7 here. After the 144,000 of Israel are sealed, what do they do? There's worship. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white with robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Church, the praise of God permeates this prophecy. From beginning to end, we see it. Everywhere, as each new event moves forward, the world closer to the consummation of all things, to the new heaven and the new earth, where God will be worshipped and adored forever by his people. Every step forward, there's worship. There's worship that, again, isn't focused on the worshipers, but on this God who is so great. The church and the cherubim, the saints and the seraphim worship the Lord here in heaven which would also be so encouraging for these original readers of this prophecy. Though they were reviled on earth for their faith, they knew they would be soon rejoicing in heaven forever. They and we will joyfully join the chorus to whom we finally read in verses 11 to 14. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a picture of innumerable angels circled around the heavenly throne of God and then joined not only by the four living creatures and 24 elders, but by every creature in every square inch of the universe to praise God, and more specifically, to fall down and worship the crucified and risen Lamb of God. 
Imagine the awesome sound of that choir. Singing, we presume, in every language. Imagine the out-of-this-world angelic harmonies. Music so worshipful and beautiful like we've never heard before that makes Bach and Beethoven look like amateurs. I can't wait to worship with them on that day. To sing tenor maybe with David and Gabriel, I don't know. As we see the Lord face to face, the worthy lamb who was slain. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and we'll shout the victory. Church, that is what heaven is like. Not what you read from someone's near-death experience or whatever ways we maybe sometimes imagine it, but no, this is the Holy Spirit-inspired record of the Apostle John's unique heavenly vision. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, his unveiling of the dwelling place of God. And what we see there is very simple. We see his power, we see his program for the world, and we see his praise. We see almighty God in glory, enthroned and exalted in majestic splendor, while all who know him and trust him and serve him and love him gather around to ascribe the infinite worth to him who alone deserves glory and honor, which therefore is clearly what we should likewise be doing now on earth especially as we study this prophecy. These future events should cause us to worship the king now. Not to get bogged down with all the particulars of this prophecy, but to get caught up in praise to the one who came to redeem us and surely is coming again to restore all things. So let us do that now and let us do that throughout the week. Here's my encouragement to us this week. I would invite all of us to take some time this week to memorize one of these short sayings or songs we have here, and then to turn that into worship and praise in your own personal worship times each day, reciting it similar to what Glenn did this morning, drawing closer to the throne of grace, where we will be forever. In his classic devotional, Morning and Evening, C.H. Spurgeon exhorted, let believers on earth imitate the saints in heaven in their nearness to Christ. Let us on earth be as the elders are in heaven, sitting around the throne. May Christ be the object of our thoughts, the center of our lives. How can we adore, adore, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, endure to live at such distance from our beloved Lord Jesus, Jesus, draw us nearer to thyself and to thy throne. Let's pray. Lord, what an awesome picture of heaven we've been given this morning. And I pray, Lord, that it would inspire us to join in the worship of heaven. And that we all would be encouraged this morning, just like the original readers of this letter, to know that though it doesn't seem this way so often here on earth, 
we know you are ruling and reigning from heaven. And one day, we'll restore all things on earth. We look forward to that day. And in the meantime, may we live faithfully to you as worshipers in Jesus' name. Amen.